0: Try to make smiles to bring sight to the blind man. It's down to the that child. We will survive. In this country full of this, swimming through the waters of not like a rebel fish. Jungle specialist, predator and survivalist. Spit and have a fight on these lips. Burn a slave driver.
1: is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom. With all thy getting, get an understanding. Again, welcome to the program this evening with your host, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. The number to reach us to join the conversation this evening is 215 490 9832. That's 215 490 9832. We're streaming live at several locations. You can go to timeforanawakening.com, which is the page and catch the live stream. At that location, you can go to www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. Again, that's www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening and catch the live stream playing there also. You can go to bb2me.com That's A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I.com forward slash time for an awakening and the live stream should be playing there or you can download the tune in radio app to any of your, any of your devices. Tune in is a free app. In the TuneIn search engine, just type in Time for an Awakening. There you'll see the icon, and you can stream the program live, even into your car if you had the Bluetooth capabilities or the auxiliary connection. Again, that's Time for an Awakening radio program with the live stream or the TuneIn app. Drop us an email at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. That's Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. Time for an Awakening it also has a fan page on Facebook. In that Facebook search engine, just type in Time for an Awakening Radio Program. There you always see interesting content being posted daily by myself or Brother Richard. And do me a favor, before you leave that page, just hit that like button. That's Time for an Awakening Radio Program. With the fan page on Facebook, and Time for an Awakening Media is also there. Always full of the latest podcasts of the various programs on Time for an Awakening. Interesting articles that you can read. Downloaded later times and share it with your friends. Also, check out that Time for an Awakening marketplace and our partnership with the BB Toomey. Always interesting things in the marketplace all the time. Various African language classes, classes on education, economics, social systems, health, and much, much more being taught by both professors on the continent and in the diaspora. So, again, make that one of your favorites. Put that in your address bar. That's dot com will take you straight. The Time for an Awakening Media. It's seven or eight, you know, on this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Um uh we got the half and half program this evening. We'll be in open forum. And our guest that'll join us a little later on after the eight o'clock hour, activist organizer, and project director for the West Georgia Cooperative and the Black Farmers program on uh Wednesdays. Brother Eric Lamar will be with us. And join us in conversation to talk about some things going on. The projects are going on with the Black, with the uh, West Georgia Cooperative, 50 years strong, moving forward. And we'll talk about some of those things with, uh, with the brother Eric when he joins us later on in the program. Uh, we'll be in open forum. We'll kind of mix it in with the conversation. And you can always join the conversation by dialing 215 490 9832. That's 215 490 9832. We'll be right back to get the program started after a brief word from our sponsors.
2: Mr. Moderator, our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and and our enemies. Everybody is here.
3: 5-8-8-5-2-4-4-4. That number is 215 885 All insurance incorporated.
1: with your host, Brother Elliot. Sundays, 7 p.m., Fridays at 8 p.m. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit us up at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening at 7.13. You're on this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Before we get started with our program this evening, I want to welcome in my co-host, Philip, an Activist and Tour Guide at the African American Museum. Here in Philadelphia, 7th and Arch Street, Brother Richard is with us. Brother Richard.
7: Yes, sir, Brother Elliot. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. Um, you know, this weekend has been been really interesting. I have to share something, Elliot, if you don't mind. No, oh, no problem. Uh, I, um, you know, in, in doing a tour um, this weekend um, for uh, a group of students at, um, from New Jersey, you know, Elliot, I, I got some stuff with me. But when I, the, the part that struck me, and, and I don't, and I'm just sharing this, and I don't know if it's the format, but I, I was getting, you know, and telling the history of Black Philadelphia that 100 years from 1776 to 1876, and the struggles, like the laws that put in place, the the inventions, I call in Underground Railroad, the invention um, that we created, the social invention, and those laws that put, put in place, and how our people were looking to, um, to, to at some point, in spite of after the you know, after they did that um, that law, the um, what's that the fugitive, the second fugitive slave law, mm-hmm. and how William still, were, you know, created the, the that book where he started to chronicle the people who came through Philadelphia, you know, well, Elliot, what, what struck me that at some point I frenzied myself up so much in connecting with that struggle and those sacrifices that it all, right there in that moment, you know, it almost brought me to tears just to feel what that might have been. You got slave catchers and all of that. And what was so interesting is that the young people who were standing there, it resonated with them. They, They acknowledged that, you know, and taking them through the whole thing of us being um, a part of this human bondage and, and property. Um, it's the first time that ever happened to me. That's why I'm kind of sharing it. You know, that that our, our, our historical story, um, our memory is just that powerful if we connect with it. And that's the point I just wanted to share. And again, it never happened to me before. I mean, I had to like stop, get myself together, cause just thinking about you know what you know you talking about slave catchers and kidnappers and people you know putting themselves in boxes in order to get to their freedom I, it it all came together and like that was no easy thing so i just wanted to share that with you in the time for waking audience
1: well i mean listen i agree with you richard that's why i don't i i have no reservations in reading uh some of our past experience here in this country, uh, uh, seeing documentaries in reference to it, even seeing certain, uh, I said certain movies in reference to it. It doesn't, some some black folks, it bothers them. They don't, they don't even want to see it. They don't want to mm-hmm. look at it. But you have to look at this and to really understand and to get to to really experience what our ancestors did. It'll connect with you. Believe me, it will. I mean, I've never gotten to the point where what you're saying, Richard, where it almost broke you down. But being able to really connect with what they went through, it's incredible, man. I'm telling you, you can just finger certain people in our historical experience, and you can't imagine what was going through their minds even to deal with that. mm mm-hmm. You mentioned you mentioned the Underground Railroad and Harriet Tubman, for example. You know when she getting to the point where she left that plantation Mm -hmm. with her husband and family there, and decided to leave them with other individuals that wanted to do it with her, and then go back several times, on many occasions, knowing it's a bounty on your head. Mm-hmm. Knowing when they catch you, they ain't gonna just smack you around and and uh, send you back to the... They were planning to, they were they were planning basically to do what they did to Nat Turner. Mm-hmm. I mean, they not only killed Nat Turner, they the, the, the stuff that Europeans did to him was beyond beyond the pale of humanity. I mean, you cut the man up, you boiled him, you you, you, you the stuff they did after they hung him, Richard, is incredible. Mm-hmm. And they were planning to do the same thing with her if they had a quarter. Right. But she went back several times. Like, she didn't really care about her. She was dealing with other people. And these people, she didn't even know. Mm. Mm. I mean, to put yourself in the mindset of some of our ancestors is incredible. And to to really understand. That's why, you know, listen, Richard, I was watching the public television station. You know, because in Black History Month, they got a they, they, have a field day showing all types of Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. stuff about our struggle they had a documentary on last night about frederick Douglass, and i was watching it but they got to the point where i couldn't watch it anymore you know i'm tired of seeing these europeans try to give an assessment of our ancestors what they believed in their struggle i mean come on man later for that oh yeah I mean, we got enough of our people out here that if they understand history and start looking at things from a historical perspective, can give honest assessments of our ancestors and their mindset. Right. See, understanding their mindset is 75% of the, the battle, so to speak. These white folks don't understand what our people were dealing with, what they thought, or anything else. Mm. They can get their perspective of it. Which I really don't give a damn, but come on, Richard. I, I just couldn't. After a little while, I couldn't deal with all that. You know, hey, hey, and and I, I understand totally, Elliot.
7: Um, you know, in other circles I'm in, you know, this question that you raise about us doing our own history, uh, us being able to, you know, interpret. Like, you know, I had to, I had a conversation. Um, with, with a, uh, a brother who, you know, where he didn't see it was a problem to have um, for whites to be included in historical groups dealing with Black people hi- historical narrative. Now, I, I, I unfortunately, I don't know if it's unfortunate, Ellie, but I, I have a problem for the reasons that you, you, you enunciate. It seems like, especially now, especially, and in, in, you could see it in this Black History Month all the white ones that's doing all the research, all the white ones who are are, are creating, whether they be museums, creating um, activities for black people to go to. And you ask yourself, well, where is the black people who are interested in this? And I always ask, you know, the group, especially when I'm amongst young people, like, who is interested in history? You know, because it just, for the reasons you said, We just need more people who will go and do that kind of work so that because I really believe it is a different interpretation. I see Brother Otis put in where, you know, when you were mentioning about that, about providing the American perspective. Like how many times I have to say to people at a large part of our placement in America, we were not Americans. That Dred Scott decision you know, like anchored it in, like they got so fed up. They had to like put that thing at the highest court. I don't know if I'm missing it, you know? So when people like, when they tell a story, it's like we came over here like everybody else and we were so gracious and, and we gave so much, so many contributions. And I do, Elliot, I even have challenges when people um, at this point and, and I'm using this here and I might get, I might get pushback about it, but, that we built this we built this country. When we say that, the question comes to my mind, well, who did we build it for? I mean, I got what they mean, but that's like dangerous when we say that. We built this country? Okay. So are we saying that we proud to build the country for somebody else who didn't who most of his existence denied us access into it? is that something to be celebrated? Oh yes, we gave we we created things, but we created things out of our own agency of survival towards my our own understanding of what freedom is to be. But not we built it, like we built it we
1: built it for us. I don't know if I'm making sense, Ellen. Yeah, I mean, listen, you hear uh, people use that same a type of uh, analysis when they talk about our people fighting in these wars that these countries, like it's some type of badge of honor or proud. Come on, man. Listen, a lot of our people fought in these wars because they didn't have any other choice. And I'm not even talking about the Civil War. That was totally different. Our people didn't fight no Civil War to save no union. They could give a damn about the union. Right. In fact, a, a lot of our people wanted out. They wanted out on several occasions long before the Civil War broke out. And see, that's that's another problem, Richard. And we're going to discuss this in future programs. I don't like some of our people now that's trying to give a different spin on our struggle here. As far as, you know, our people always wanting to be American. Right. And part of this American project. Right that their whole aspiration was to be American. Now, you know what I'm talking about, Richard. Oh,
7: yeah, yeah, There's too many yeah. of
1: these narratives out here that's false. Now, I'm not saying that all of our people, some of our people did want to fight to be accepted and be American, if you use that term. The, but the masses of our people did not. And the only way you know that, Richard, is if you study history. Mm-hmm. because if you rely on these people that's supposed to be some of them is supposed to be historians, but they're really not, they might be English majors, English professors and others. They're not really historians, but if you study some of the works of our people, look at some of these historical narratives, you can see that our people did not believe in that. Some of these narratives that they're putting out. And I'm saying that some blacks are behind some of these narratives, Richard,
7: Hmm. And, and, and it and it and it it it's what's so critical. You know, uh, we were just going through um, one of the texts, uh, stamp from the beginning to this point of, and I'm like the the psychology, because I'm like, why? Look, I, I'm not. I think that we should be engaged in dialogue with our historical narrative in order to be able, as you say, to search out, but. To this point of the Civil War, we won the war, right? We won it. They was losing before we got involved in it. I mean, it's, it's 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 evident. I don't know if I'm missing something here, but it's evident. But so why are we? Why in some images we act like what's that guy? Abraham Lincoln rescued us. That narrative, that interpretation, what does that do for us when we say this white man who actually really didn't even, who was trying to, who who said on many occasions, I do not want this war to be about slavery. Mm -hmm. I do do wish, if we even do it, we will have to get rid of y'all. He said it to our face. Yeah, exactly. And I don't want to give y'all no gun. How do we make him, in our historical images, the, the and, and look, again, as you said, Elliot, I mean, when we, I mean, I can't place 2023, I can't, you know, into 1865, 66, 67, when black folks were celebrating. But what does that do for our mind when we now acknowledge it like he did? And, and and these historians, they wa they do it softly, but they project it like it was him. They never put out that black folks won the Civil War. The boys put it out. But you those historians, I, I mean, in these narratives, these docudramas, they say we were I mean they, they say you contrabands. You was a part, you know what I mean? Like we you had the, the the fighting fifty, you know, that Fighting 54, but do they ever say if it wasn't for black men who argued whether we should get involved for the point that you said, this is a white man. It ain't about state rights for us. It's about freedom for us. Do they ever project that? (laughs) And if they did, what would that do for us in taking us out like we were victims compared to making us, you know, celebrate that consciousness of victory? That's... Uh, don't get me started,
1: El. Yeah, If you even look at that that whole situation around that Civil War, it's too many of those battles. If you start focusing on those battles, Richard, it's too many of those battles that our ancestors were involved in, whether you're talking about the one in South Carolina or mm-hmm. uh, the Battle of Milligan's Bend. I think that was in Mississippi. It's too many of those battles where white soldiers had basically abandoned their posts and left because they were outnumbered three and almost four to one. And our ancestors were going into battle fighting these whites, outnumbered four to one, three to one. And a lot of it was hand to hand. And turned the tide of that war. For freedom. they give a damn about some waving some flag in the United States. They wanted freedom for our people.
7: And just imagine if we're telling that, from our perspective because it, it it brings a rippleless effect in the sense of how of the portrayal I think this, I think that that period that reconstruction period more than the civil rights period is the is is what we should be um lifting up and looking at from every dimension because black folks were i mean black folks were like really critical. I mean, even to the point where being asked what you want. If we, what what you want. We want land. We want to be left alone because y'all ain't ready. We want to educate
1: ourselves and we want to reap the profits of what we produce. <laughs> that, whole, that whole meeting in itself, Richard. When they met with our ancestors down there in Savannah with leadership. Now, you know, the brother mentioned last week and I wasn't aware of it. I, I didn't question it, but I got to look back at that because I wasn't aware that Delaney was there. Was Delaney there, Richard? I, I, I didn't see his name. He, the said, he said that Delaney, he Delaney said, was there. Delaney, yeah, yeah. But when they met with our ancestors down there, basically telling them, listen, you won this war. What do you want? That was basically the gist of that meeting. And they said, well, listen, we don't think that we could live among whites. Because the hatred for for our people among your people, that's what they said, is -hmm. too great. They said, we want land, and we don't want you to give us the land. Once we make the land profitable, we'll pay you for it. They didn't want no Mm handout. Give us the land so we can be by ourselves. That was the consensus opinion of our ancestors. Those things are not driven home, Richard. They're not even driven home by our own people. I don't expect whites to drive that home. They want to give a different image. You see that image of the, I think they got a statue somewhere, whether it's in Washington or whatever, of Lincoln. He's standing up there as like some type of benevolent father. And a a black guy is kneeling down, looking up at him like they're looking at the Lord.
7: That's what I'm saying.
1: And Sister Netta said they also
7: wanted to be able to find their family members. Exactly. That, that's what I'm saying. I mean, what the... Now, when you're talking about in this moment, people talking about... And and, and I know it's not promoted as much it might have been. Because we had, like, you know, at some point we were having um, festivals. We created holidays. we cre- It wasn't something that we didn't wait for somebody to enunciate. That we giving you a national holiday, we created our own moments of celebration and festivities in honor of our own victories. Somewhere it gets somewhere it got lost. I, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm just trying to bring forward Elliot that we we have to be able to have that kind of. You can't transmit. That, I guess that's what I, what I noticed in that moment, Ellie. Because those young people who were standing around, when I, when I, they caught it, it transmitted to them. And afterwards, they recognized me for that. I seen that. During that period, after for all those people they called contraband, for all those Africans who moved off after they went back to their respected areas, look at what they were able to do in that short period of time. Yes, transmitted, and the thing that they again that um the the this society this government this this group of people who, who still want to maintain control. What did they? Because the other thing they said, all y'all got to do is protect us, give us our rights, and you ju- and, and protect us. And what did they do? What did they do? Even with. They moved the colored troops away. And what they do? They gave up. I mean, that's a case study that we have to look at when we look at our communities. And what do they transplant it with? Militias, police, who we feel whether they good human beings or not as individuals, we feel they are occupied force and a reinforcement of why, why the spaces we live in, we can't develop from our own vision based off our own spirit.
1: Bridget, Uh, uh, um, I, I think that looking at, and we've talked about this on the program before, man, looking at what happened, and we talked about it last week with uh, with uh, dr Harris mm-hmm. I think you know i, I listen i it, it's it's more than a thought. I truly understand that Europeans underestimated the resolve of our people yeah after that the uh, emancipation and after that mm-hmm. battle and the war and that civil war was over, and our people was had a mono of freedom. They underestimated what we were going to be able to do, Richard.
7: They said it. They said they couldn't do it. They, uh, they uh, were deliberating in Congress. They, you know, that they, they couldn't do it. They, they
1: wouldn't be able to develop on their own. Now, now wait, wait a minute. Hold it, Richard. Now, they made their mistake when they did that. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, they enacted laws to stop us, and then they kind of winked or allowed us to be attacked physically. Mm -hmm. Just like they underestimated us, we did the same thing with them. We underestimated, because while we were building towns, establishing an economy, and things of that nature, we thought that when we helped this America get back on their feet, That they would protect us. Mm -hmm. We underestimated that these people would come after us with the same type of of bloodlust in their eyes that they always had. We underestimated. Listen, it wasn't like our people were no pumps. During those battles, just like I said before, all you got to do, uh, listen, some of our people that are not familiar, go look at some of those battles that our people participated in in that civil war. We kicked them people's ass, and a lot of times we were outnumbered two and three to one. So it wasn't no factor that we couldn't beat them in battles. We just underestimated what was going to happen. We thought it was going to be protection. We... We could have invested in some type of of, of, of weaponry, uh, mm. uh, ways to really protect ourselves. I'm not talking about some guys maybe having two, three shotguns in their house. When these people came at us, they was prepared. Mm. Just like these people underestimated the resolve of our people, we underestimated them and what they would do. It's too much evidence of that, Richard, that we underestimated them. So do we learn from our mistakes? Because believe me, they learned from theirs. After that, they made sure that we could, couldn't get no type of economic footing. The evidence is clear of that. The evidence is clear, undeniable. Mm-hmm. They made sure our people would be stumbling around and not being able to get an economic footing. And I'm not talking about no here and there, no one that, you know, you, you point at these people now, that Oprah's. and no, I ain't talking about that. I'm talking about our people as a whole. They made sure that we couldn't get economic footing. Took all that land. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and up in the 1920s, we had millions of acres of land. Made sure they took all of that by hook or crook by stealing it, by just taking it, and doing using legal means to take it. All of this stuff was done. And I- go ahead. I'm sorry.
7: No, 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 go ahead.
1: Excuse me. No, mm-hmm. I mean, all of this stuff was done by people that were supposed to be friends. All of these people wasn't no darn uh, 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 Confederate flag waving uh, who uh, uh, Yahoo's. It was the government, just like Malcolm said. Don't say Southern senators; it's the government. Hmm. Yeah, go, go ahead, Richard. I didn't mean to cut across you. No, no,
7: I, I, was just, I, was, I was just thinking when you said about the land of how you know, and I, I know we've been bringing it up, you know, but besides what happened to black farmers. And in some of the interviews we had with with the brothers and and saying the experience they had in trying to get the funds and and the news reports that we see when they when they even get offered that what is a billion dollars in order as far as the recovery and whatever and how immediately the um the white farmers and the and the white banks what they what they actually go and say but here a rancher what's that Colorado mm-hmm. I mean all he, I mean, and, and, and it's evident. So this here thing of you, we, you know, like when individuals are displaying and it's gotta be at a certain point and why some people can get to become billionaires and they left alone and others, as soon as they go out and do, they ain't harming nobody. They're attacked, and they don't have to, well, we don't know. Ain't nobody calling them up and saying, send the militia. They on automatic. You know, these guys, they just, you know, they buy, a, when, when the COVID happened, you know, we, we hear that they ran out of bullets, and nobody was giving them the bullets. They were buying them. <laughs> Who the hell was they getting ready to shoot? <laughs> hmm.
1: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I
7: mean, I mean, am I misconstru I mean, you know, am I missing something? I mean, I, I am I, I mean, I might be exagger I mean, I'm not even I might be projecting forcefully, but I think that that's a fact. I'm not, you know, making up any facts of what kind of environment we're in and how this is centered in our continuously in our history and the question is is this okay but they'll bring out some people and say everything is okay america is beautiful
1: yeah and they make sure they bring out people that look like you right to send this message that's the that's the next phase
7: But only, as you say, only through a historical and critical analysis that we actually free our thinking, therefore, <laughs> free our mind. Ain't that what Michael said? <laughs> you, you lost your mind. If all these things are true, then, it, then the therefore should be something else other than what we're doing. Because then you that means you're waiting on somebody to give you, to do for, to uh, operate in your interests. When all these things being true, they ain't never did that. Isn't that what history is showing? I
1: don't know. That's why we got to take these tools that we have available, Richard, uh, to move our people forward, whether it's political how we conduct ourselves politically, how we relate to one another. All of these things have to be used, and we have to use a cultural perspective. Right. We can't use this type of, this stuff is killing us. Let me, Richard, you share with me something earlier, and I just want to read some excerpts from what he wrote. And this was done in 1910, wasn't it, Richard? Yep. The souls of White folk. Now, everybody's aware that W.E.B. Du Bois wrote The Souls of Black Folk. But he also wrote the essay The Souls of White Folk, where he uh, did an overview, a historical perspective, so to speak, on Europeans and their influence, not only in the world, but on black people. Now, that's what I picked up from some of the things that he wrote, Richard. Mm -hmm. Now, let me just read a couple of these excerpts here. And then I want to play some clips in relation to something that happened, uh, I guess this past week. This is the essay, The Souls of White Folk. It says, High in, in the tower where I sit above the loud complaining of the human sea, I know many souls that toss... And whirl and pass, But none there. That intrigue me more. Than the souls of white folk. Of them I'm singularly clairvoyant. I see in and through them. I view them through unusual points of vantage. Not as a foreigner. Do I come. For I am native. Not foreign bone of their thought and flesh of their language. Mine is not the knowledge of a traveler or the colonial composite of dear memories, words or wonder, nor yet is my knowledge that which servants have of masters or mass of class or capitalists of artisan. Rather, I see these souls undressed, And from the backside, I see the workings of their entrails. I know their thoughts. And they know that I know. This knowledge makes them now embarrassed and furious. The discovery of personal whiteness among the world's peoples is not a modern thing. A nineteenth or twentieth century matter, indeed. The ancient world would have laughed at such a distinction. You know, Richard, when he's saying that, he sees them. Yeah. he's using a historical perspective. Mm-hmm. You got to use a historical perspective when you're dealing with these folks. You can't go in there. Oh, listen, uh, Bobby Zawinski. He's a good friend of mine. He's all right. You can't. You can't do that. You end up making a fool out of yourself and anybody else that you're dealing with. Beth Ann McGursky. She's good. She's good to me. She's nice. She's all right. What does that have to do with the masses of our people and what they're going Mm -hmm. through? Absolutely nothing. How does that liberate us? Exactly. Because Beth McGursky and, and, uh, And and Bobby Zawinski has been good to me on my job. Let me, let me, there's something else he says here, Richard, because he's using a historical perspective to kind of set up all of what he's saying about the souls of white folk. Let me go down a little bit here. It says, but what on earth is whiteness that one should desire it? Now, he talked about that before and other public, Richard, he talked about that with the double consciousness. Right. He talked about that because that's what we're faced with. Now, look at what he says here in another passage. It says, so long then as humble black folk vulnerable with thanks receive barrels of old clothes from lordly and generous whites. There is much mental peace and moral satisfaction, but when a black man begins to dispute the white man's title to certain alleged bequest of wages and position authority and training, And when his attitude towards charity is sullen with anger rather than humble uh, jolidity, when he insists on his human right to swagger and swear, then the spell is suddenly broken. And the philanthropist is ready to believe Negroes are impotent and that the South was right. And that the South was right soon as you start saying, wait a minute here, whoa, whoa. I'm a man. I don't have to accept this from you. You you see what he's saying, Richard? You see what he's saying? Now, some of our people are accepting of what he's saying here. In fact, Du Bois said it that some of our people want to accept what they get. He doesn't. Now, maybe he did at one time. See, that's why I'm saying he was a true renaissance man as far as I'm concerned. And you read his writings, you see it. When we discussed it last week with, with Dr. Harris, that when they formed those early, the, the uh, African-American League, mm-hmm. the Niagara Movement, when other blacks wanted to do this themselves, and then he broke off when they formed that NAACP and and had allegiance with whites. And some of the men kind of balked at it. Trotter and others said, oh man, what are you doing? But then he realized later on that he made a mistake and he wrote about it on several different books. That he was double-crossed that he didn't understand. Dr. King said it. That's why I play that clip. He said it 11 months before he was gunned down. And I'll probably play it during break. When that guy asked him, he said, do you have any idea, Dr. King with, uh, white want you to be in this country? And he said, I'm not talking about segregationists. I'm talking about whites that are, uh, without res- racism or believe that they are uh, racism. Do you know what whites want you to be? He said whites only going to go, but so far it's like an installment plan and they're only willing to go. But so far, that's what he said. Du Bois came to the same conclusions and he wrote about them on several occasions. So do we learn from these men? Do we learn from these experiences or do do we keep buying into the narrative? Oh, Dr. King was all about uh, hand in hand with white folks and playing that 63 speech. When he said himself, that was only a strategy to use. And now we got to move beyond that strategy. I uh, think that's what he said, didn't he, Richard? Oh, yeah. Is yeah. that what is that what Dr.
7: Fox is talking about? Addicted to white, black yeah. folks, for those black folks that he says that they're addicted to white. For them to be able to think that that that's okay. Look, Elliot, I don't hate anybody. I don't think I hate anybody, but I ain't gonna let nobody harm me. But you can't be putting the thing up in my face and telling me I'm looking at. i You can't put blue in my face and telling me I'm looking at green. It just ain't working like that. Mm. Mm. Now if you hypnotize, or even as Dr. Wilson says, is if you possessed, then that means you got somebody else in your body. Ain't that what they ain't that what the, that, that movie about possession is all about? Mm, you got yeah. something else right and it's turning your head around.
1: You know? Let me let me read this last part, and then I'm I'm playing a couple of these clips. Go for it. He said, uh, "We have seen you and I, city after city, drunk and furious, with ungovernable lust of blood, mad with murder, destroying, killing, cursing, torturing human victims because somebody accused of a crime." happened to be the same color as you and I, the mob's innocent victims. And because that color was not white, we have seen merciful God in these wild days in the name of civilization, justice, and motherhood. What we have seen, what we have not seen, I'm sorry, right here in America an orgy of cruelty, barbarism, murder, done to men and women of Negro descent. So he's looking at the trauma that our people have suffered. This was uh, this was up until 1910. It's nothing has changed. The perception that it has changed. Listen, since since uh, Nichols got killed. By those five black idiots that 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 abused him and murdered them up there, you had two other incidents of similar. One incident, Richard, the man was a quadriplegic. He's in a wheelchair. He's a quadriplegic. He didn't have any legs. He was accused of stabbing somebody. Did you? I don't know whether you even saw that Uh, video. I didn't see that. I didn't see that. You have four cops around this man. He's in a chair, and the thing about it, he he jumps out of the chair and tries to run, and he didn't have any legs, Richard. He was running on stumps. I mean, he couldn't get away. This man, he, and then it looked like one arm was deformed, but it looked like in the other hand he did have some type of weapon. But you mean to tell me you can't subdue a man without gunning him down, and this man's a quadriplegic? Then another incident that just happened. This man, he another unarmed situation, he's coming out of the, they said something about an illegal lottery house. Well, in black neighborhoods, that's a number house. Mm-hmm. He's coming out of the numbers house, and he's getting in the car, and somebody in the car had some alcohol. So he's pulled over. No weapons, no nothing. they pulled over because he. they seen him coming out of the number house. They try to arrest him. And then they were going to tase him. And he said, listen, I got a heart condition. I think they tased him three times. Man, when he got him to the the precinct or to the hospital, he died. Mm. So this stuff is not stopping. It's what we're going to do to end this. You know... The the acceptance, and you know, he, he made some other passages here about the acceptance of whiteness by our people and the demand of acceptance. But let me let me play a couple of these clips, Richard, because I, I think they kind of associates to uh, to what we're talking about. <laughs> but I think the pushback is the part that's necessary. And the forceful pushback, and I'm not talking about somebody uh, jumping up and and chicken necking and and threatening to go upside somebody's head. I'm talking about the pushback to let people know that you, I'm a man, and you ain't taking advantage of me. You ain't going to talk to me any kind of way. It's not going down like that. Because these people will try you. I don't care whether you're in politics, whether you're on a job, whether you're just in public. These folks will try you. And if you don't let them know what they're dealing with, then they'll try you again. Then sometimes it'll be a little worse than the first. But you got to demand these people's respect. In one way or the other. Let me play a couple of these clips, Richard. I I think they might associate. If I can get it up, find it, find it here. Hold on a second. Now, this was a lawmaker, a young sister that uh, is a congresswoman. I think she's new. She just went in in Texas and they called this meeting and the uh, the I forgot that white woman that's down there in Georgia made some statement there about, well, I'll let you hear it for yourself and hear her response and what she did or didn't do. Let me uh, pull it up here.
8: over the fatal Memphis police beating of Tyree Nichols, Republican chairman of the House Oversight Committee, Congressman James Comer, eliminated the subcommittee on civil rights and civil liberties. My next guest proposed an amendment to reinstate the civil rights panel, but it was voted down along party lines. Joining me now in studio, Congresswoman Jasmine Crockett, a member of the House Oversight Committee. Congresswoman Crockett, welcome back to the Sunday show Um, Why should there be a subcommittee on on civil rights and civil liberties?
9: Well, considering where we are in this country, I don't even think it should be up for debate, unfortunately. Um, This subcommittee existed before. This subcommittee was responsible for voting rights issues. Um, As we know in this country, there's a few questions around voting rights. Um, Some of us fled our state and had warrants uh, surrounding voting rights. In addition to all the police brutality, everyone could um, unanimously say that what happened in Memphis was problematic. Well what really did happen in Memphis? How did we get here? That is the question. How do we make sure that there is not another Tyree Nichols? And so it's important that we have this oversight and we use it uh in a smart way. The idea that next week I'm gonna be dealing with Twitter And Hunter Biden's laptop, these are the priorities. That is a problem when we have people that are dying in the streets. So I think that this was a very common sense amendment. uh, And Marjorie Taylor Greene seemed to agree, kind of.
8: (laughs) Kind of. You brought her up. Let's play this, what she had to say about Tyree Nichols.
10: I do agree with you about Tyree Nichols' death. I watched the video, and it was tragic and, and extremely difficult to watch, I would also like to point out that that city is Democrat-controlled, and the five officers that have been arrested and charged are black, and I think that this isn't isn't an issue of uh, racism or anything like that. I'd like to also point something that I'd hope you share with me. There's a woman in this room whose daughter was murdered on January 6th, Ashley Babbitt. And Ashley Babbitt has, there's never been a trial. As a matter of fact, no one has cared about the person that shot and
6: killed her. Congresswoman Crockett Ashley Babbitt
8: um, was an insurrectionist. I, I said it. Your reaction to um, Congressman Green?
9: <laughs> so interestingly enough, um, this was just an organizational meeting, and so it was my first time. So I was like, "Where is the clap back button?" I was like, "Which button is the?" <laughs> because I didn't know, you know, but uh you know, I it was really offensive. Um, He had not even been buried and you drew this false equivalency. There was no equivalency. This was a black man driving down the street in America trying to get to his mama's house who had not committed a crime versus an insurrectionist who was coming to kill some of your colleagues or harm them in some way. Um, The fact that you think that they're on the same level is a problem for me because you're basically saying that a white woman in America committing a crime should be given the same deference as a black man who simply was driving down the street not committing a crime you think that that's the same level uh and the fact that she had that young lady's mom in the room as a prop on that day it was almost like we planned this and i walked into it um but it is offensive Um, we do know that we need you know part of this that you didn't play was her talking about our prisons and so she said you know we do need to investigate because the january sixers that are going to jail in prison you know what that that's a problem those conditions are bad all of a sudden we care about all of, a sudden. all of a sudden,
1: it's bad because of the January 6th insurrectionist folk. Richard, now you heard her say that uh, she's new. She was new in Congress, and, and she thought that she might have been uh, kind of set up. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll give her a pass because she said I was looking for a clap back button because I wanted to say something, but she, she didn't. And maybe she didn't because she's new. But she's not new. And when I say she's not, you got her colleagues that's not new sitting there. They didn't, did they say anything? Not at all. See, not that, at all. See, but that, that associates to what we're talking about, Richard. And what Du Bois was trying to get people to understand about buying into this whiteness. You know, he mentioned something here about culture. In this particular uh, 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 essay that he wrote, yeah, I probably won't get to that this evening, but we're going to get to that in future programs because it's deep what he's talking about, about us accepting white culture. Mm. He says it in there mm. because it's too much of that going on and black people are doing it and don't realize what they're doing. And that's that's so
7: that's so critical to now because what underlines culture that we don't get to is the value system. Hey, that's what that that's what I was what saying. that we believe. Cuz we see what as he said, I stand behind them. I see what they believe and what they're doing and what they believe. Ain't nobody believe that even in even in their own ancient history about whiteness at least And that's what we wish to adapt. That's what we are. Is that what we're striving for to become? Is that what we're celebrating? (laughs) Did we have any value of our own?
1: Yeah, but if you don't, if you don't, if you don't know anything about your own culture, Richard, the culture of your people, the history of your people, then you'll be accepting values. You'll be accepting other people's values. You'll think it's nothing wrong with teaching a little black child, whether it's a young boy or girl, about queer theory. I don't even know what the hell that is. You'll think it's nothing wrong with those type of values. Those are not African values, accepted African. I'm not saying that that type of stuff wasn't done back in ancient times. It wasn't accepted among our people. But you had societies, European societies, that was based upon that. It was always accepted among their people. Always. Those are not accepted things among black culture. It's just not. But if I if I buy into this American project and accept everything going down the pipe, I'm going to say everything is all right. And believe me, that's going to come back to bite black folks. Or at least the ones that are accepting of that. Let me play this one clip, and then we take a break, and then come back, and uh, probably Brother Eric will probably be joining us soon to kind of, we kind of get an update on some things going on. Let me let me uh, play this, Richard, if I can get this. Now this was a uh, young black lawmaker that went in to uh, Tennessee, and he wore a dashiki. Now l- let me play this here.
10: Walker not dressed. To legislate, newly elected state representative Justin J. Pearson called out by his fellow lawmakers for his apparel in the Tennessee House.
4: He, show, he chose to wear a dashiki and onto the House floor, and it's now sparking a debate about what is considered professional attire.
10: Our Kelly Cook explains how the Speaker of the House is using a late, well-known Memphis legislator to make their case. Kelly, for what is appropriate and what's not. Yeah, Joe and Joy, dashikis are popular in the African-American community. It's a tunic worn for... Formally and informally that has origins in West Africa. Well, Thursday, a Memphis lawmaker opted to wear one, and it turned into a debate on the House floor and social media about decorum. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Thursday was the first day on the job for new Tennessee State Representative Justin Pearson. And just like the first day of school, he was very intentional about his attire.
8: Wearing this dashiki on the first day and being sworn in wearing it uh, is paying homage to the ancestors who made this opportunity possible.
10: During the day's opening remarks, Representative David Hawk of Greene County got up on the House floor to speak.
4: I want to talk about the history of of Lois D. Berry.
10: The late Lois D. Berry was a well-respected longtime member of the state house, a Democrat and first woman in African-American to ascend to the position of Speaker Pro Tem. Hawk recalled years ago being reprimanded by D. Berry for not wearing a coat and tie in the assembly.
4: We honor Lois's memory and, and how we look and how we treat each other and how we Give the respect that we hope to get back. I still, to this day, I keep an extra tie in my drawer. It's time for the rules
8: to change. It's changing times. There are going to be more people who are a part of the body that represent the plurality of our country.
10: Pearson immediately took to social media Thursday, posting, a white supremacist has attacked my wearing of my daishiki. Resistance and subversion to the status quo ought to make some people uncomfortable. Tennessee House Republicans fired back, saying on Twitter that House decorum rules were unanimously approved and said, If you don't like the rules, perhaps you should explore a different career opportunity. That's main purpose is not creating them. We checked and found there is no written rule for what can be worn on the House floor. However, in the permanent rules of order decorum, it is within the Speaker's purview. There is a precedent of wearing a suit and tie but it doesn't mean it can't be changed.
8: I told you, Kelly, I've been wearing suits since I was eight years old. There's not a problem with wearing suits. There is a problem with upholding systems that tell people what is wrong and what is right based on what is considered normal. And in this status quo, what is normal is what is white.
10: Now, Speaker of the House, Cameron Sexton, did send us this statement saying, in part, men must wear a coat and tie if they wish to be recognized in committee or on the House floor. Miss D. Berry would frequently address members violating this precedent and remind them of the requirement. The speaker will continue to follow the precedent and the path established by Miss D. Berry. As for Representative Pearson, he says he will continue, he says, to celebrate his culture and ancestry in the State House. To be continued. In studio tonight, Kelly Cook, Action News 5.
1: Richard, now, <clears throat> it's kind of funny that the, you've got these Tennessee lawmakers use this woman, this black woman, talking about, the, you know, she admonished people for not wearing a coat and tie, so. <laughs> You, I mean, it's it's really funny, man. I'm telling you. It,
7: it, it's a, You know, what, what gets me is his response
1: like, what you tell me to wear is to be white? And I ain't going for it. Hey. And, and wait a minute. You notice what he said, Richard. And see, this is the problem that I have with blacks in politics. Because they don't look at it like, you know, our people need a way to kind of facilitate and to uh, move our people forward in this society while it still exists and do all that they can to get that job done. You heard what the the white lawmaker said to him, if you don't want to wear a coat and tie, maybe you ought to explore a different career opportunity. And that goes along with what you said about some of these black folks look at this stuff as a, uh, they're political entrepreneurs like it's a job mm-hmm. well to this white dude it is a career opportunity and to some blacks it's a career opportunity and maybe well, the majority of them
7: that. at least he's telling him that that this ain't you ain't a statesman you just doing a job
1: <laughs> well uh, uh, uh we'll, we'll see what's going to happen in reference to this but I, I'm, you know, I, I played those two because it just shows you that that mindset of white folks wanting black people to accept whiteness and to accept their narrative still exists. You can't run away from yourself. What that, the record that the Blue Notes made with Teddy singing. You can't hide from yourself. Everywhere you go, there you are. You don't, you, these people ain't changing. Your perception of them might change, which you believe might be true, and a lot of it is not true. Mm. (laughs) We're going to take a brief break. When we come back, I guess Brother Eric will be joining us. I I know he probably had to, because he told me he had a uh, a cooperative meeting, but it would probably be over around 8. And uh, we'll look for him to join us. If not, we'll continue the dialogue. You can get involved in the conversation by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832, time for an awakening. We'll be right back.
4: RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837.
12: Escape the digital plantation. abibitumi.com, 2 mecom Abib2Me.tv, 2 metvcom 2 mestore are here for you. You are ready to be free to join your global Commit to You Black family, to join your interconnected Commit to You Black communities. Escape the digital plantation now. Abibitumi.com, Abibitumi.tv, Abibitumi.tv.com, mestore We are here for you. Escape the digital plantation.
6: of Pennsylvania, I am ashamed to be a state representative in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania with a chump like Governor Ridge at the helm. I'm ashamed. But I wanted to come here today to let you know that some of us are not afraid. That even though we may be elected, we'll say what's on our mind. But we must understand that we're freedom fighters first, and at all Things come next. That I'm a black man first and then a state representative. I don't confuse the two. And I think it's time for us to wake up and realize and understand that you got a lot of us that are willing to go to battle because the freedom ain't gonna never be free unless we take it. There's too many of us sitting around thinking that it's gonna come to us on some damn silver platter. Wake up, you fools, and understand this man has no respect for you. None, none whatsoever. Today our people can see that we're faced with a government conspiracy.
2: This government has failed us. The senators who are filibustering concerning your and my rights, that's the government. Don't say it, Southern senators, this is the government. This is a government filibuster. It's not a segregationist filibuster. It's a government filibuster. Any kind of activity that takes place on the floor of the Congress or the Senate. That's the government. So this government has failed us. The government itself has failed us. And the white liberals who have been posing as our friends have failed us. And once we see that all these other sources to which we've turned have failed, we stop turning to them and turn to ourselves. We need a self-help program, a a do-it-yourself philosophy do it right now, Falesa. Uh It's already too late, philosophy. This is what you and I need to get with. And the only time, the only way we're going to uh, solve our problem is with a self-help program. Before we can get a self-help program started, we have to have a self-help philosophy. Black nationalism is a self-help philosophy. What's so good about it, you can stay right in the church where you are and still take black nationalism as your philosophy.
11: And I think we are in a new era, a new phase of the struggle, where we have moved from a struggle for decency, which characterized our struggle for 10 or 12 years, to a struggle for genuine equality. And this is where we are getting the resistance because there was never any intention uh, to go this far. People were reacting to Bull Connor and to Jim Clark rather than acting in good faith for the realization of genuine equality. Do you think white people in this country, and I'm talking about non-segregation, as people devoid or thinking they're devoid of racism, do you have any idea of what they want the Negro to be in America? I think the vast majority of white Americans uh, will go but so far. It's a kind of installment plan for equality, and uh, they're always looking for an excuse uh, to go but so far. an Awakening is a proud part of the Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black digital and podcasting platform.
1: Welcome back to Time for an Awakening uh, 818 in the city of Philadelphia on this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Uh, I see Brother Eric has joined us and it's good to have him here, activist, organizer, and project director of the West Georgia Cooperative, 50 years, over 50 years, going strong and moving forward. Brother Eric is with us to kind of give us an update on what's going on with the West Georgia Cooperative and things that they're doing. Brother Eric. Greetings,
13: greetings. Hey, well, yeah, hello, everybody. Hey, what's up, man, bro? How you doing, sir? Doing wonderful, doing wonderful. Just just business as usual, but other than that, all is well.
1: Yeah, I, I, uh, you know, it's it been a while since I had talked to you when we talked uh, uh, last week, but uh, I understand that you be uh, talking with
13: Richard quite a bit. I don't be talking to Richard. Sometimes, <laughs> I be on, sometimes I have my phone on with Richard. Sometimes we share spaces in, in, in club time. So, I don't, yeah, we don't talk that much. I don't... Have that kind of time, I wish I did, but yeah.
1: (laughs) It's good to have you with us, man. Listen, uh, Brother Eric, talk about some of the things that the West Georgia Cooperative is doing. Listen, I caught you on the, um, uh, Ron Hance had a conversation of the Black Cooperative's uh, webinar. In fact, we aired it on uh, Time for an Awakening when it was, uh, I think it was back in uh, November, if I'm not mistaken. Uh,
13: Yeah, it was. Yeah, late last year, sometimes. Yeah, t- that- talk about some yeah.
1: of the things that the uh, you know that uh, the cooperative is doing, um, because I knew you were working on the big project when you were uh, broadcasting on a regular basis, and you kind of had to put things on a hiatus because you were moving into a different phase. So, talk about some of the things that the cooperative is doing, and and how people can really get involved, and or maybe start cooperatives in their
13: areas. Sure, sure. Yes, yes. Um, West Georgia Farms Cooperative, yeah, we've um, started to build out our um, another piece of our food system. Uh, we're what what we're attempting to do, or what we're what we're in the process of doing, is a comprehensive food system. Um, pieces of it we already have, and we're just continuing to build out the other pieces. And in August of this year, we purchased some property in the city of Lagrange. And on that property, which is close to two acres, we're, we're going to build. A, it's going to be centered with a co-op owned grocery store, um, a commercial share kitchen, as well as a credit union, and of course, and there will be gas islands. It's pretty much. Um, it's going to bring, of course, um, it's going to bring food access to that area. And of course, it's going to provide an outlet for for those folks. I mean, for for farmers and producers to be able to get their food into the community marketplace. Um, you know, ultimately, you know, we want to. We we like to see. My vision is that all of these communities where we, um, where our people, and what I mean, we, we talked about, you know, black people, you know here in the United States of America where mm-hmm. we live and. Whole um, a lot of um, geographical space, but no real economies. We want to kind of change that li- that that landscape to where we got some vibrant community-owned, you know, enterprises, as well as some other things to to, to really bring life and power and vitality to our communities. Of course, and we're doing it. Um, through food and through equi- through equitable food um, oriented development, um, a concept called EFOD, Equitable Food Oriented Development. Um, we didn't invent that term. That's a term that's out here in these spaces. But that's kind of the principle. So that's what we're doing nowadays, and that's and that's what we are. I'm heavily involved in. That's 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 what that's what I spend most of my time um, working around.
1: Brother Eric, um, go back into the history a little bit for our listening audience because uh, the, co- the cooperative itself is probably older than you, brother Eric. Uh,
13: yeah, it is. It is.
1: Yeah, t- just talk about it because listen, it's hard for some of our people because of the environment that we live in to to stay together and to build together and to keep that bond. It's it's just difficult. uh Talk about the success of the West Georgia Cooperative and how this thing has been passed down because now it's in your hand and in other people's hands, how this has been passed down and has that, that glue have kind of kept things together for over 50 years just talk, give us a little history, uh, uh, background,
13: right, right. West Georgia farmers cooperative was founded originally in, in, 1966 in Hamilton, Georgia, Harris County, uh, for those that may know Georgia and Georgia's counties. And it was initially started as the Harris County Cooperative um, by a group of very enterprising and determined um, men and women, um, you know, farmers and their families with the objective of aggregating, you know, their products and selling into larger markets and creating local markets of their own. And of course, um, it was started by five, you know, courageous men. And of course, and at the time there were about 80, um, families that were farmers and their families that was a part of this. And they were very, as I mentioned earlier, very entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial, very enterprising, um, and of course there was just a lot of um self-determined work going on in, in in that part of rural Georgia and mainly you know their activities and and of course in some other people um in 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 the west even in southwest Georgia there was the charades, you know, that were they were down there doing um new communities at that time. And so all all of those groups were kind of connected, you know, in keeping with principle number six of the co-op. And of course, and people that have that have passed now, such as Ralph Page, they were instrumental in getting the co-op initiated. Um local CAFI community action agencies um kind of incubated the co-op. And so they started to they did their thing, they produced variety of vegetables, livestock had a, had a pretty thriving, um, feeder pig operation. Um, they, they were able to, they were milling their own grain, um, making syrup, um, wood chips for, um, for, you know, um, hickory, hickory chips for, for, for barbecue wood. I mean, they're just, I mean, firewood, you know, um, logging operations, even housing, um, you know, mobile homes and even some, some small starter homes. There, was, there wasn't much area of business activity that this group wasn't involved in, you know, of course, at that time. And, and, of course, and they took pride in it. They purchased land collectively. They built their own buildings with their own skilled labor, um, those, those properties we still own today, that building we still use, that's where, that's the property where our, our food hub is, um, is, is located and we're doing some work there to expand that food hub. And so, yes, um, this was a very dynamic enterprising, um, group of people that, you know, that, that, that laid a solid foundation because these were solid people. A lot of co-op activity was going on around that time in the rural South and of course, um in organizations like the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, which is now what later in, later and now known as the Southern Federation of Southern Cooperatives slash land land assistance fund, um that was the the kind of um cooperative development agency that was formed, you know, to lobby on behalf of those rural co-ops in the South and making sure they were included in the farm bill and they had access to government resources, no technical assistance and all of those things. And the Federation is still going strong today, probably stronger than it ever has been. Um, but of course that was created from the work of, and, and from the business of cooperatives like West Georgia farmers Cooperative. So yeah, the, that's the, um, as we you know, as we're in black history month, yeah, that's some of the um, work that some of those, um elders did um a lot of a lot of co-ops that were even formed back in that time um many of them aren't around today but we're proud that this one is and we continue to you know to do the work to to maintain its solvency.
1: brother eric of uh, the um of the the farmers uh and other growers or oh, whether well, it's livestock or vegetables that are involved I mean do you have for example uh do you have like a certain amount that you because you don't want everybody involved maybe producing uh uh cabbage or, or, or peppers or whatever so do you have like it's segmented off maybe certain farmers will produce this certain
13: problems produce that yeah. go ahead yeah that that kind of happens kind of naturally in a way because okay. you know you got some farmers that you know, that, that, that prefer to produce certain things because, you know, after all, you know, these farmers you know their, their first, you know, objective is feeding their families. And then of course, you know, surplus goes into the marketplace. And of course, in, 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 in our farmers, they do farm, you know, of course for, you know, for a living. And so, yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of um, a situation where we've got, you know, we service large customers, customers that purchase a lot of food and so it's a situation where having you know having other people working with you like you know of course anything can happen you know with with nature and and you know of course the weather sometimes you know some farmers may be able to others you know pick up the slack sometimes we need all of them um but then you know, of course, things grow in different seasons. Um, so yeah, we just, you know, we, but, but at the end, the way, the way the process works, you know, of course our farmers sell to us, we purchase from our farmers. And then of course we sell to our end use customers. So that's kind of the way we simplify the system. But yeah, we, we're we able to keep, a, keep our supply chains and to keep our supply activity um, managed in a way that we're able to meet our customer needs. Okay, uh, Richard.
7: You know, brother. Eric, You know, I've always, every, every, um, you know, what you're doing with the, what you and others are doing with the cooperative, I, and and your your plan. I've been very, um, you know, what's that? Celebratory about it because I one, and this is a question I have for you. Would you say cooperatives is a uh, critical uh, economy that Black folks um, have used? Not just since sixty six, but um, before sixty six. Uh, you know, I'm interested in history. So, from from your vantage point and your understanding, especially in the South, is this cooperative process um, something new, and or is it something that Black folks have
13: continuously used over time, as you understand? It's not new, but it's not widely known. <clears throat> this the cooperative as a business formation. Mm-hmm. it's something that's not really celebrated um broadly across America period not only just in 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 in, in black spaces but um if you want a a history of, of 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 co-ops in black american history um please read the book um collective courage by Dr. Jessica Nimhart um, Gordon um she really chronicles you know of course the history of our you know, use of cooperatives going back even to slavery, um, you know, but the the business formation of cooperatives, yeah, we've, there was every 30 years or so there's like a dynamic rebirth of cooperative economic activity. Um, of course, our co-op, you know, was starting in the kind of mid to late sixties kind of, you know, before that first wave that kind of came through like in the early seventies, that produced a lot of co ops, you know, that we know now, a lot of the white co ops that we know now, some are popular and some are still going. Um and then of course there was another wave that came like in the nineties and of course and some of those co ops are still around. And then there seems to be another wave coming about now, um, especially food co ops and in in, in in urban areas and not even just urban areas but in areas where people where there's either an issue of trying to address a food desert or communities um, particularly you know white communities where people just really want um, a different food system serving their their their, their palate needs um, you know of course, Food co-ops were the forerunners of organic groceries, even being in grocery stores, period. Food co-ops were where you used to have to go to get anything organic because you wasn't going to get them in your supermarkets. But as um, regenerative agriculture, um, the the health benefits, the nutritional and the taste benefits of locally grown and organically grown food um, started to become popular, um you know, of course, co-ops in a lot of these you in, in a lot of these specialty stores started to crop up in a lot of you know um gentrified spaces and in, 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 in spaces where you know white people with a lot of um excess income you know um could afford to build these enterprises and using the cooperative model they they had ownership of these, of of, of these stores and and the products of what they, you know, what they were um, purchasing and consuming. And, and that was power. That was power in the, um, in the food system. And of course, and now there I'm, I'm proud to see a lot of our, a lot of people in our community starting to um, take this leap and embrace the cooperative model to, try to control their to try to have sovereignty over their food systems and of course um cooperative economics is necessary for us because of our our wealth position you know of course it's it's easier to pool resources because you know that's that's the only other way for us to do anything that is going to be self-determined um you know And and that's not going to be owned by some other because corporations aren't really building; they're not they're not coming into our neighborhoods and our communities. The the demographics just don't just don't um, satisfy their need for profit, and so we've got to do these things. and I'm glad to see that my brothers and sisters in Detroit they're doing it. My brothers and sisters in Flint, Michigan, they're doing it. Um, They've already they already are doing it. Um, The store is open, and they know how you. In um, a couple of other places around the nation, you're going to see a lot of these um, food co-ops start to sprout around black America. And of course, and we're in rural black America, we're just extending. We're in, And our co-op has done something similar before. We've had smaller stores like convenience stores, right? When I was telling you those glory days back when when, when our people, when they were really busy in the 60s and 70s, um, they had they had convenience stores and gas stations. They had two of them, as a matter of fact. But you know we're we're you no know, we're embarking upon a full a full service grocery store that hopefully won't be the last one, but just the first one.
7: You, you know the reason why I asked that because and we had um, sister um, and I always mess up her N- N- Nimhard Nimhard. Yeah. Right. Had, we've had her. Um, you know we went through. Um, her texts, and we've had uh, here on Time for Awakening. We have e- even interviewed her, um, which only reinforced, um, you know, for me, um, that the co-op model. When she mentions the beneficial societies and the mutual aid societies, these are the uh, econ- economies, and you, you may reference to a real economy. These were the economies that Black folks created. That's that's you know important to me compared to. The quote-unquote proto-American capitalist uh, society, and you know, and that, and that's what I'm <clears throat> the reason why I I celebrate what, what y'all are doing, um, even if you're saying end the transition from one generation to the next, but to to anchor that in our American experience, like American experience, this is the economic formation that um, we. We established early on. But let me ask this here. Um, it was a, uh, because it's somewhere I want to go in relationship to making co ops work and hopefully your experience and what you've been developing will help with that. Um, your per, how you came personally to the co op, the vision you had, and, and you have mentioned the vision of those um, men and women, say, you know, when they created the co op in, in 66. How, how did, the, how for you, if you don't mind sharing, how did those two visions come t- together? Uh, I don't know if you always had, um, but how did those two visions come together from a
13: personal to sure. a, a group um perspective? Right. Yes, yes. I got into this world by, you know, of course I was I'm a small farmer. I had purchased a farm um back in twenty twelve and and of course, prior to that, I was a you know backyard gardener. I was I, I became an enthusiast for you know organic food, um, and so I started growing my own you know in my small space. And then I was inspired to purchase a farm, and so and I got connected with all of these subject matter experts with you know about you know the um about organics you know getting certified and you know heirloom seeds and heritage breed animals and livestock and biodynamic growing and, you know, composting and, you know, um, green manures and all of those things. Right. And so Ralph Page is the person who led me toward, led me to West Georgia farmers cooperative. And you can look him up. He's a hall of famer. Mm -hmm. He's, he's probably one of the, um, most influential people that a lot of people don't know about. Um, he grew up in the same place that i grew up um in lagrange georgia matter of fact he grew up in my neighborhood um he joined west georgia farmers Co-op as a young man um after he got out of college and of course um he worked there you know with some of the you know um, with some of the elders that founded you know this co-op they groomed him and he got a job with that Federation of Southern Cooperatives that I told you that was formed um, in 67 to serve organizations like West Georgia and, and some other co-ops, um, G's being Quilton B, some of those other early co-ops. But anyway, so he worked there for some years and eventually became the, um, the executive director. And he served in that role for 30 years until, you know, until he resigned in 2015 and, and then he passed in 2018, but, I connected with him in about 2011 even though I had been knowing him all my life but I never knew him in this capacity um I just knew him you know from the neighborhood really didn't know too much of what he did because he was just that kind of low-key kind of humble person um but then I found out what he did and I was in East Point you know because the office is for, for for my Atlanta folks um it's in it's in East Point um Georgia which is a uh, you know a little, little area outside of Atlanta um and so met him at his office and I was, cause I was interested in doing that kind of work because, you know, I'm a social worker by trade. And, and so, you know, I was doing my farm kind of as a supplemental income thing, but I was still, you know, like doing, you know, human services work. And so I, I want to kind of work in that arena, you know, with um farmers and rural communities. Right. And so, and he told me, he pointed me to the, to West George farmers co-op. And and I was surprised because it was a secret. It, it it was right here under my nose. I mean, where West Georgia, the county that I that, that he and I, you know, lived in and was born and raised in, and the county that West Georgia was formed in, their neighboring counties, Harris is it's the neighboring county to the south, and so didn't even know about West Georgia Farmers Co-op. Um, and I and at the time I was in my early forties, and so, um, met the people. Um, went 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 to a couple of meetings. Um, saw that you know I saw what I saw what they had. I saw the infrastructure. But by this time, the co-op was in decline, right? Because there was not any real business going on. They had closed up their feeder pig operation maybe about ten years prior to that, and so they were just pretty much just trying to figure out what to do to get it reignited. So they were still having meetings and those things, and so. I, you know, of course, um, met some of the second generation people and even some of the older people that were still there, you know, who just, you know, still coming around to meet and, and, I guess, talk about the good old days and figure out what we could do today. And I eventually ended up joining the organization and I brought a lot of my resources that I got from the um, sustainable ag community, you know, from the from the organic world and um, and some of my contacts and subject matter experts. And and that's how and, and 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 that's how I got involved, and that's how we made a lot of valuable connections to get us to get our um, business jump started again. And then one connection led to another connection, one opportunity led to another opportunity, and then over the years we evolved and we decided, you know, we we saw how the how things kind of worked, you know how the how these systems worked. And you know, instead of struggling, you know, we were we were all hoping that you know, as farmers and even as a co-op, that you know, we were trying to get our food into these into some of these big customers and some of these big channels and and you know, we we still you know do that. People come to us now. We don't really you know go to too many people because we kind of built a reputation. Um, and so we decided, hey, let's just you know let's just build our own system. You know that that will include our own stores. You know, so if Nothing else. You know, we, we we got our own retail channels to sell into. If we can't get in Publix and Kroger, let's build our version and model of Publix and Kroger. The, the people will support if it's nearby because everybody needs to eat. And so that's kind of how things evolved to the point of where they are now.
7: And I like the idea, and this is what I'm, you know, the one thing that I like is the ideal of the supply chain um, mm-hmm. um, development. I mean, you know, um, but the one of the questions as you were explaining how you came to it, um, in that moment, did you notice that there was, and I'm asking about the generational transfer, because mm-hmm. you made reference that, you know, you right. being so close, you weren't aware, but at the same time, these were, and I'm assuming, were elders who were holding on but time had changed did you see that the, there was a, a a gap in generation in order yeah.
13: to you know to build out most definitely most definitely the, the generation that was missing was the baby boomer generation mm. um the baby boomer generation even though Mr. Page himself was a baby boomer but he he had already moved on to big things with the federation but you know, but he always kind of looked out, you know, tried to look out for the for West Georgia based on his, you know, based based on you know his connection. But but as far as running it day to day, making the decisions, we still had a one of the um, gentlemen from the Silent Generation who was one of the founders, and he was an awesome man. But he was literally keeping the co-op afloat with his efforts and with his resources, you know, because his children. Um he you no, know, they didn't but now his his youngest son is is our is our current president and he's a he's a gem. I mean, if it wasn't for him, this this co-op would not be properly in existence. Um he and I we work together well. He's like the he's like the brawn. Um well he he's the brawn in the brain. I'm 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 a little I'm I'm I'm, stop I'm playing, I'm, stop playing, stop playing. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but, but nonetheless that's that's kind of the and then we got some other some other um you know, key people that, that that do some pretty significant work that kinda and we all kind of sink in well together. We grown our co-op and, and of course and we're continuing to grow it because that's what we we've got to do to get to get to where we're trying to go. But yeah, that was a the generation that was missing that didn't really embrace the leadership was the um was Generation X. Um that we, we had a we we had a board member that was a part of Generation X. He had moved away um and he worked in another state. And he started coming back he was he kind of had started he was he he was the one that- that that, that kind of started the work of getting the co-op reignited um but he never um but but we never but that that generation is is if if that generation had uh, stepped up and embraced the the um responsibility of the co-op it probably wouldn't have went in a slump but but the beauty of it is that you know it it never dissolved you know, the gentleman, you know, the older gentleman, he's, um, he's 90 years old now. He's, Mm. um, kind of, he's, he's somewhat demented. Um, now, you know, as he's, as he's, you know, as, as he continues to age, um, and he, he's no longer really involved in any of our activities, but he kept it together. You know, him and his family, they paid the taxes every year. Um, they made sure that the lights were on if necessary and they just held on to it long enough for us to come along and, kind of, you know, put our resources together and start to move it, start to move it again. And so that's who we are now.
7: And, and this, Elliot, this is what, uh, um, the reason I, and, and Eric, because, you know, when I'm looking at from the perspective of us, of black folks in America, you know, having an economy, this generational gap that happens, this generational transfer of the human cap, the of administrative capital. That, that keeps the institution moving from one generation so the wealth the the system can be um, continued to develop um intentionally what, what I hear you saying and I see it in other places it's, it's a natural um you know it's a natural ma- maintenance but it's the intentional from one generation to the next and I think that that's important when we look towards the future again because I'm an advocate that this is something that we bring to. The, um, and as you had said, our, our own survival, whether because of food desert, whether because of um, the, the, the future trade relationship or whether because of, you know, employment, you know, um, and skilled in the diversity of skills. This is what I think Booker T. Washington was looking at. I think the um, boys was looking at and then others who were assessing how do we create an economy in this kind of environment? And my um, which goes to my you know, last question, if you don't mind. Um because cooperatives is, and you said you your background is human services cooperatives is a relational and i'm i'm am I'm projecting, but I'm asking as a question, and it seems your human service background you know will help support this, but cooperatives is a relational um type of business um you know that people have to come together with the same values right. Um, would I be correct that it has to have a certain value system for cooperatives to work? And what what are the ingredients of those values? Um, if I'm correct, that is
13: necessary
7: for cooperatives to build out.
13: Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And of course, and cooperatives are found or based on seven principles. Um, we, as you mentioned, the values, but they, they are they are principles that they guide cooperatives. And of course, in everybody is not suited for being a part of a cooperative. And mm-hmm. and it's extremely hard when you got a culture that, that conditions rugged individuality and get nice. the bag. Hmm. Um, it's hard when you. You have to have people that are willing to suborn their, you know, the, their own personal interest and greed to a certain extent, because no, knowing that the collective need is, um you know, it has to be, you know, taken into consideration because without if, if the collective isn't strong, it doesn't matter about the individuals within the collective. People, people who are a part of cooperatives, they they understand and they know that. But yeah, there are seven principles. Um, and I rattle them off real quick. They're not that long. First principle is open and um, voluntary membership. Um, that's where you know pretty much the it's it's pretty much it's not that restrictive, but. You know, you don't have to let anybody in your cooperative, you know, they have to be people that share something in common with you and and of course and that, that's about your mission. You now we often get that about, you know, white people, you know, being a yeah, you know, technically yes. Um, but you know, not any white people. It's gotta be just like just not any black people. It's gotta be people like they have to understand that this is a this is a co op that was founded, you know, by black people and we don't want it and we don't want no historical erasure. Um and then the second value is um, oh, uh, the, the democratic. It's a democratic organization. You no, know, of course it's um, formed by the people and governed by the people. You know, people elect the board, and board hires managers. So you got you got some accountability there. You can elect people off boards. Um, you no know, board members can fire underperforming people at you no know, with pressure from the membership. So you got some accountability there, and it's a it's a one man one vote um, situation uh, as far as the profits and the and the sharing of dividends. You know, of course, um, it's not like a corporation where a person who sh- controls a lion's share of the um, stock um, has has outsized influence in in number of votes. Now it doesn't work that way in a co op. You can you can own. You know more shares, but that don't give you, you. Still only have one vote. So that's the that's that's principle number two. Principle number three is economic participation, and that's the pooling of resources, the sharing of resources. You know, in order for it to work, everybody has to um economic economically participate, have to put skin in the game, right? And 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 and, and, and how a co-op differs from other businesses, just say, just say if you invest, if you invest in a company, you you get so much of the profit, you know, even if you don't participate in that corporation's economic activity, you sit at home and you just collect the check as the company prospers. Co-op is different. You have to play alone. You have to um, it's called patronage. You are pretty much um, remunerated based on your economic activity. If you spend the most money. During the year, you'll, you know, for the most part, you know, with some, you know, with some, with some very, you know, um, some very kind of detailed act, actuatorial um, execution, um, you can, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll basically get the most of, you'll get more money than people who don't spend any money at all. So it's, it's a patronage. It's like, you know, you, you kind of get out or put it, get out what you put in you know, plus maybe something else. Um, So that's principle number three, economic participation. Principle number four is autonomy and independence. And that's where, you know, you collectively pool your money to purchase shares and ownerships and to to finance your enterprises. You know, the the, the principle behind that is that you won't have to go to a bank or anywhere to borrow money. Um, but if you do, you still, you're, you're not giving up any control or ownership, you know, because right, right. And then principle number five is education, information, and training, which of course, you know, in this system that we live in, we don't, we don't learn about cooperative economics. We learn about economics. We learn about Kensington economics and free market, but we don't learn about cooperative economics. So so, you, so we learn about it by being a part of a co-op. You know, we're always getting information and training and technical expertise, subject matter experts. Um, principle number six is cooperation among cooperatives. If you're going to build a system, um, you know, you, 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 you cooperate with other co-ops. You purchase their products, they purchase yours. You know, it's like a trade relationship. You know, from country to country, but from co-op to co-op, and then the most important principle is principle number seven, which is concern for community. Um, you know, you you identify a need in the community, and you feel it. Whether it's if it's food, you form a co-op to a grocery store. If it's finance, financial um, products and services, you can form a credit union. If it's housing, you do co-op housing. If it's daycare, you do a co-op daycare. Mm-hmm it can be any sort of business whatsoever. It's just going to be community owned. Right. So, so because there's a need for in the community and the co-op wants to fill it as opposed to some, um, some, some Walmart or somebody coming in or some, you know, entrepreneur coming in to extract from that community without the, without the, the, the community's concern at heart at all.
7: And, 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 and finally for me, uh, Elliot and, and brother Eric, you know, um, as you laid out those seven principles, and as I said, you know, for me, this is something that um, Black folks did from its inception as far as uh, creating a, a economy. Um, this is where I might get myself in trouble. Because it seems that um, when we talk about repair, um, the cooperative approach I do not necessarily hear as a part of our repair strategy, you know, or or reparation strategy. And to me, that is the you know the the saving grace um, in relationship to dealing with uh, us as a people and our um, wealth development for future generations. And wealth meaning the human capital wealth, as you mentioned about that training, the element, the principle about training, so there wouldn't be a lag from one generation to the next as far as the management and even um, operationalization. Operate. Opera, what's that? the operation of of the co-ops in these various industries or even in developing the trade relationship. I mean that that re, that's hopefully stays as a human activity that we can be engaged in this economy. And and to me that's a repair strategy that I think that we should be emphasizing that I'm not sure I'm hearing and I don't know if you'll disagree with me at, um, about that. But I I'm, you know I'm an advocate in in principle that that's something that centers us in our history and, and centers us in an economy. And as you did say is different than the values and the economy that we're in that reinforces that we shouldn't be in a cooperative um, relationship type of economy compared to a, a, where, and I think uh, sister Nember says Nember says that it's an economy of abundance compared to economy of scarcity. And I really think that that's where we need to go and and how we go and how we should go. So that's my, that's my um, thing. Again, I don't know if you agree with that, but my thinking is that that's centers in a lot of different ways uh, um, and where we should go. And that's why I really respect what you're doing and, you know, what y'all are doing um, and, and, and the strategic understanding, you I have at this moment.
13: Yeah, I agree. I, I agree with that. Um, I often, you know, of course, when I'm in, Spaces, you know, discussing reparations. Um, you know, of course, um, I champion, you know, of course, um, I, I I champion cooperative economics as a as economic systems for us to have in place to 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 kind of circulate our reparations funds. You know, we'll we'll have economies. Um, of course, you know, what you know, of course, once we have wealth, you know, there will be people that want to do banks instead of credit unions. Um, there are people that will want to do, you know, entrepreneurial type things and even do partnership type things where the profit is going to go to them, their families and their high, you know, that's fine to a certain, you know, we, we once we're made whole, um, you know, we'll be able to participate in all activities of the, of the economy. But I'm, but me personally, I would prefer that those economies are cooperative economies because you know they. um, I mean, they have greater longevity. Um, Statistics show that is when you compare startups, um, regular startups to co-op startups, startups um, outperform you know regular startups by like seventy-seven percent. No more co ops stay in business past three years than regular startup businesses. Um, and there's just so many other benefits to co-ops that I mean, the cooperatives, other than you know just individual profit, that you know that that that, that really, um, that 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 will be more beneficial, I believe, for for Black communities because you know I don't I don't want our communities to be exploited or extracted by anybody, Black or white. Um, but you know that's why that's why I champion you know cooperative ownership.
1: Thank you. I agree with you 10,000%. Brother Eric, um, is it, um, because you know, I, I've been in contact with the brother Ron and He's been kind of doing a lot of these forums on the black cooperatives. Uh, in fact, as a national organization around that, but, um, has there been a lot of interest outside of Georgia for you to come in to kind of, uh, kind of guide people on how to build a food co-op or just a cooperative in general. It's, I I know it's a lot of interest because you, you kind of move around, but just talk about some of the areas uh, that uh, you've kind of aided and helped and people kind of want your expertise.
13: Well, you know, of course I've, I've spoken at, you know, many conferences and workshops and, and of course, you know, places where, you know, people want this information. I'm, I'm, I'm connected to some, to some people in some of these organizations that are doing that work. So, you know, of course they wanna hear about West Georgia story because you know West Georgia does have a story that a lot of people are interested in because of its longevity and of course and it's um and in, 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 in the work that we're doing today. Um but, you know, of course um I'm not really uh I mean I don't really take you know I, my I, I can't really do too much work as a lecturer because of the you know, because of my obligations in, in, in directing this project and, and of course I still have my own farm mm-hmm. that I have to work and of course I do work in our farm job as well. So um but I do take matter of fact there's a there's a panel going on um a black liberation panel going on this week Thursday that I'll be participating on. Um and so and then I just we we just we just convened a a George Organics conference this past this past weekend down in middle Georgia. So, yeah, um, I, 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 I do get a chance to share this information. And then plus, I'm a part of an organ. I'm a, I'm a part of a cooperative development organization in Georgia as well called Georgia Cooperative Development Center. Um, I'm, I'm a board member of that organization and a general lady who was a general manager. At a food co-op in Atlanta for several years. She's a subject matter expert that's on that board with me as well. And, and of course, there's another white gentleman who's, who's a general, who is a manager at another food co-op in Georgia. So, um, so yeah, we share this work through, so I, I share my expertise in, 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 in this gospel of cooperative economics through, through those channels, through the cooperative development center that I work with, through this cooperative and through some of my other affiliations.
7: I like that, the gospel
1: of cooperative economics. Oh, okay, I got you.
13: <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, uh, <laughs> well, I, I'll, I'll leave that alone. I, I was going to kid with Brother Eric. Brother <laughs> Eric, listen, because um, you mentioned earlier about food deserts in urban communities, which we well aware of it. Um, the West Georgia Cooperative is, is uh, some of our brothers and sisters in the South uh, that have access to land, um, that are close with a lot of the, the uh, produce and livestock that they uh, produce. But the cities, um, because we've had Brother uh, Malik Yankini on, but this was, a, this was quite a while ago. In fact, I might have to reach out to him to get him on again. Uh, but um, talk about how it's different setting up a uh, co-op in an urban area, or would it be different? Um I know uh, maybe bringing food or, or produce from uh, maybe Georgia to Philadelphia might require f- refrigerated vehicles, but just how would it be set up uh, if you were involved in an urban area and wanted to do a food co-op? How would you do that?
13: Well, it's, it's, it's no different. Um, those, you no, know, of course, you mentioned Malik Yakini of course um, they, they've got, um, they're building a food co-op. They're building a pretty, pretty large food co-op um, up there in Detroit and of course as far as supply um and as far as you know sourcing from you know another another um principle that that we champion is local food um i and in, in in most in 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 many people in the in in the spaces that um that do the work that that that, that I do we believe that food should be Purchase from sources as close to you as possible. Ideally, no more than 25 to 50 miles. But, of course, depending on seasonality and some things, you know, might have to go beyond that. Sometimes local means the whole state. Sometimes local means the whole region. Um, I know they're in Philly of course I know they've got Amish farmers that can that that source of, that they source a lot of their local food from and there may be even some black farmers but you know of course the, the growing season is different but um but then there's also local food also um deals with seasonal eating as well um we believe that nature provides everything that we need No, you know when we need it so um a lot of people that, that believe in eating locally and eating healthy, they're not familiar with the concept of eating in season. Um, like for instance, this time of year is it's better for your body. Red meat is what you need in the in the winter months and then in the summer months you do like white meat and, and fish and those things because of the you no know, because of the lighter calories and the in the minerals and those things are better, you know, to burn off easily, you know, do in the summer heat. And you know, and being loaded down with a lot of the, um, the the you know the nutrients that you get from red meat, so you wouldn't really need if you eat according to the to 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 the true na- nature to nature's true principles, you wouldn't really need watermelon in Philadelphia, in 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 say um in say September October, you know you can you can farmers there can grow pretty much things that they can get from Southern farmers. It's in a shorter window, but it can be grown. Okay, And and when you grow it, you harvest the excess and you, and, and you can it freeze and you have it later on in the year when you want it and need it, or you eat what's available. You no, know, when it's, when it's available, but yeah, but that whole issue, cause there was always this, this, this desire to, and the Federation was, was pretty good at facilitating, getting, um, farmers, getting getting get get the products of farmers from south georgia up to chicago um they would they would load up these um 18 with uh, um these tractor trailers and take truck lo- truck loads full of watermelons up to chicago um that's cool i don't have a real issue with that once or twice every now and then and plus you know watermelons they're like this, the um the um clean 15 they're part of the clean fifteen and. People that know about the, you know, about organic food and the categorization and all of that, they know what I mean, because of, you know, because of the way a watermelon has got its thick hind and all of that, it can absorb, you know, um, even if you eat conventional watermelons, you won't be really doing yourself any any harm because watermelon, based on the way it's structured, it can, you know, it can withstand and and, and, and fight off a lot of things. And it and it also keeps well for 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 a period of time. So but 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 ideally, you know, of course we and that's why we build in local food systems, so we can make sure that our people have the food that we need at its optimal time when it's grown, obviously. But when you start trucking and shipping food and it it gets bounced from crate to crate, it loses a lot of this original Freshly. freshness, okay. yet yeah, it loses its vitality. And of course, in, in in the industry was notoriously known for growing varieties of food not for their look or their taste or their nutritional value, but based on their market durability. So um, you start to get varieties that would that would be that would be grown simply because they could last longer. They will take them longer to spoil you because you know they they knew that they needed to be in a truck for a week or in a refri in a refrigerator for a week or whatever the case may be. Where you know, but the customer is going to be robbed of what that what that fruit or that vegetable really produces in nature because of the um the commercial processes. Okay, uh, let's, uh
1: got a couple calls that's been sitting here. Let's uh, see, if they want to have something to. Uh, let's go to 718.
3: 718? Good evening, Brother Elliot, Brother Richard, Brother Eric. I have a question, and um, I'm enjoying the conversation, but one thing sparked my mind during this conversation in terms of cooperative economics and food um, co-ops and how you related it back to historically how blacks in America have always engaged in this practice. It was natural for us. It was a survival tactic. So one of the things that I think of now is that in my specific family, my grandmother, my grandparents, who are the silent generation, are the last generation that engaged in any sort of um, farming and um, bartering and living off the land, as we call it. But, you know, because, you know, they were sharecroppers, they were born in the sharecropping, and they lived it, when they migrated north, and I have the same story with many of my friends, when I speak to their parents and, you know, when their grandparents, their grandparents were around, they could not wait to get away from their farms because of the labor, how labor intensive it was. And one thing I'm thinking is that how do we change or shift the negative stigma that comes with engaging in cooperative living as opposed to just not to say that everybody has to do it. But get rid of that negative stigma that comes with it, just being, le- um, you know, very labor intense without any reward, and get back to what actually the benefits of us living, growing our own food, engaging in cooperative economics, similar to what Eric brought up with, you know, if it's a daycare center, if it's a bank, well, or, or a credit union. As opposed to just being this whole independent and in this whole with the world moving so fast and with artificial intelligence where everyone wants convenience. Like, how do we, so I guess it's a two part question, deal with the negative stigma of engaging that sort of life and looking at the benefits of it, as opposed to viewing it as back in the fifties and sixties as a sharecropper where we are living, as opposed to something that's great for us. And how do you compete with the world that's changing when everyone wants that, that they want the bag, they want it quick and they want it as an independent or individual. I hope that makes sense.
13: Yeah, it does. Is you? You really? I heard two things. Um, you seem to be talking about how people bemoaned um the agricultural lifestyle that they had to endure. You know, in the South, and of course, you know, just the I guess just the backbreaking nature of the, or just 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 a just labor intensive you know lifestyle that 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 was required that they wanted to get away from, and then of course also the the cooperative mindset versus the the individual mindset, that's kind of, am I right?
3: That is correct. And how okay. those two things connect.
13: Yeah, sure. Sure. Um, we've been doing a lot of work, especially when I first got into, um, into, into regenerative sustainable agriculture. Um, the, the data was showing that not only, I mean, Americans were, were, were American kids just weren't really getting into farming. Um, white kids, black kids, none of them. Um, and that was a, and that was a threat. I mean, that, that was, that was a real problem. And one reason they weren't getting into farming and I'm just going to focus on our, our kids, our black kids, um, you know, just like the other kids, they didn't, they didn't see it as a sustainable lifestyle because they heard those stories that you're talking about from there. And so, and a lot of our kids associated farming and agriculture with slavery, and so you know we did a lot of cool things. Um, you know we had to, you know of course there was there was these little cool hippie little white kids that was from privilege that would go out and, and and, and start a farm and create a brand and go to these um, farmers markets in these expensive in these high end neighborhoods. And next thing you know they were semi they 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 were they were making a living. So so you know of course but we started to show um, you know, that it was possible, but to be quite honest, um, it's, it's, it's possible, but you have to kind of have some resources. If you want to, if you want to farm and make a living farming, you know, um, you know, you, if if you got some family land already, um, if you got a family farm that you can take over or, or, or if you can, there's a lot of programs and resources out here geared toward beginning beginning farmers and in 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 um in in new farmers and young farmers and of course and and there is a market but of course the thing about it is you know of course this this ag system has always been geared toward the large commercial farms but you know organizations like some of the ones that i'm connected with you know the 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 george organics um nasd um not nasd i'm thinking reparations but it's a um, but it's, there's a, there's a, there's a DC, there's a DC group lobbying group that puts resources that lobbies the farm, be able to put resources in the small sustainable um, regenerative ag. And, um, and so, yeah. So in, in farming just ain't for everybody. I mean, it, it's, it's not, it's, 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 if, if it was that easy, everybody would have been doing it, but you can, you know, grow some, I mean, you can, if, if you have a desire to grow your own food, I mean, You know, there's a lot of urban ag organizations in most of these cities where you can go and learn how to do raised bed gardening and you can learn how to set up your, you know, your compost bins. And so you can you can turn your backyard into places where if you want to raise chickens for eggs, you can do that. Um, You know, you can um, grow a lot of things like tomatoes and peppers. You might can't do a whole bunch of corn and heavy things um, that require a lot of space. But you can do some things in small spaces, a lot of leafy greens, herbs, um, and, there's, and, and there's no shortage of resources to show you how to do those things. Um, but, you know, but if you don't want to, if you don't have the time to consistently commit to it, just find your local farmers. You know, just find that local farmer and get those things as often as you possibly can in season. And, of course, and, you know, if you can, wean yourself off the grocery store eventually, you will, Once you get once you get addicted to the taste of real food. Um. So that's the that's 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 how how that particular problem is being addressed. Um. Is you know just just getting kids exposed to ag in another way. Um. And 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 then as far as the the cooperative mindset, um, that's an issue where if you notice, and, and this is what I really remind people about our co-op, right? Nineteen sixty-six. Think about that. Nineteen sixty six, we had really um started we 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 the civil rights bill had been passed for two years. We were starting to integrate. Um and so our co-op was being formed at a time when people were looking to get integrated with with white America. And I and I thought that was pretty interesting. It just really showed the the mindset that our people had developed years before that, before they even started the co-op. To know that they had to, you know, to build self-sustaining institutions, and they had to own them and control them, and they continued to do that work. Um, they didn't. They didn't give up on that and just and just go assimilate. Um, and so, so that cooperative mindset is something that I think we we have deep within us. We know that as Black people, but we just don't know how to put it into practice. Okay. Yeah, we just don't know how to put it into practice. And the cooperative is that formation. You know, of course I went over the seven principles earlier. Um, and and I guarantee you those seven principles, at least some of those principles resonate with anybody black that has a desire to build communities, to build a nation, quote unquote, unquote so to speak. And that is the that is the formation. That's the tools, that's the machinery that 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 that, that, that will manifest those desires, but how do you get people, um, into it? How how do you recondition people's mindset toward it? Well, you know, remind them of the necessity, you know, of course, and then once they start to see the benefits and of course, um, it's, it's not, I don't know if any of you all belong to a credit union, but if you do, um, you know, the, the benefits that you get from your credit union versus a bank, um, you know you can um swap out that that car loan that's maybe eleven to twelve percent interest rates um that credit union to buy it back from from your um from your financer from from whoever owns it and and let you refinance it for about five or six percent. and then by the time you're done with the car loan, you they you, they didn't let you know, but they were saving some of that money you might walk away with five or six thousand dollars after you paid it off. You know those are things that you'll get from a credit union. Versus a bank because a credit union is a nonprofit that's owned by its members. Where a bank, th- those fees that you pay, all you know, the high high interest on your loans and low interest on your savings um, investment vehicle, um, to um products, it's a reason that money goes to those few rich investors who 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 um who's heavily invested in that bank. That's why a lot of these banks merge the way they do um because you know it's just you know of course the desire for for more greed too much is never enough and so for us as a people you know right now that's on the that that doesn't have a lot of wealth um co-ops are the the cooperative model is a natural way to build a a community economy people that are that that a lot of our people you know they have ambitious entrepreneurial goals um, they have these business. Ideas. They 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 have these businesses that they want to do for themselves, and they prosper, and their family prosper. But those businesses don't scale. Um, data shows that most of those are what you what we call solopreneurs. Most of them don't don't have one employee. That's a W two employee. At best, they may do ten ninety nines. I know, I know guys that's been having businesses for forty years and still doing ten ninety nines. And, and they've actually grown and they've got a bunch of employees, but they're 1099 employees because we, you know, those people, they don't really want to invest in their people and in the community, but the community, a group of people that has the community at heart, they'll do that. So the challenge is, is to find that group of people and to continue to build with that group of people and, and, and really, um, you know, heavily lean on principle number seven and build your co-op to the point where you can have that kind of organization that can deliver for your community, the way you, the the way our community needs, needs to be delivered to.
1: Thank you for your call, sister. I'm sorry. Oh, I guess she's still there. Let's go to 505. 505? Uh,
7: Yes, I'm just learning. There's a lot of interesting conversation about farming. A
6: lot of things I didn't know. Good show. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you for your contribution, brother.
6: Yes, sir.
1: Brother Eric, um, tell me something before we start uh, minding things down. Uh, We got this, this all over. And just say somebody in New York, Philadelphia or whatever wants to be a part of West Georgia Cooperative and what they're doing. The uh commercial kitchens, the full service grocery store, uh the, the uh the gas station. Uh how how can they do that if they wanted to kind of be involved? And then sure. and they're not, you know, in uh in, in the county where you are.
13: Yeah. Um they can, um, you know, go. They can join. They can go to go to our website, um, westgeorgiafarmerscoop dot com, and they can join. They can become a member. That that for twenty dollars, you can purchase an annual membership. Um, that will um, give you access to our monthly meetings and our monthly calendars and those things. But I do want to stress, and that's just going back to principle number seven, concern for community. Um, I. And it just, it, it goes back to local and in loc- location. Mm-hmm. You really, to, to, to really benefit what we're doing, um, because a co-op, the unique thing about a co-op as a business model is that its member uses its products and services. Mm-hmm. And so, so people that are in proximity to shop, that's who would benefit greater from a co-op and that's who that that's, that's that's who the co-op would benefit from the greatest um because and i say there there's there are some real case studies um you can the, the renaissance co-op in greensburg north carolina they were a co-op that kicked off about 2016 largely black um in a black community serving a, a food desert but of course, they had a lot of people from outside of their community. You know, people that you know would probably hear about them on a on a show like this, get excited, contribute to them. But by the time the grocery store opened, those people weren't there to 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 you know buy you know yeah. put, put seventy five dollars in a buggy two times a week or one hundred and fifty dollars in a buggy you know once a month, and those stores and so they really couldn't benefit a food co op like that. Now there are some co-ops that have, you know, that that, that have virtual things that, that might have strictly virtual platforms that you know that that you could benefit. I mean that where there could be some reciprocity, but for those people, I encourage you to fo- to find a co-op near you. Mm-hmm. You know, we love to have your support. We love, and you, you you're more than welcome to join. You can learn. Um, you can you can you can really have your eyes open to this, to this co-op world, especially black co-ops in, in how we move. And maybe that will inspire you to get a group of your friends or, you know, um, colleagues or comrades do something similar or find a co-op near you that you can join and participate in that, 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 that they can benefit from you and you can benefit from us. Because to be quite frank, if you're in New York or Philly, it's not it's gonna be hard for us to benefit. And it's gonna be hard for you to benefit because I mean we don't wanna ship food to you and it's not as at its freshest when it gets there and things. I'd rather you go um around the block to a urban garden, you know, in um in early June and get some of their um heirloom tomatoes, you know, because that's so you can really get the full um experience and the full value of local food. And then, of course, um, I mean, and, and then the cooperative enabling you to own your local food system.
7: Okay.
1: All right.
13: Brother Eric, listen,
1: I want to thank you for coming on. Kind of give us a little update on some of the things that uh, West Georgia is doing. Uh, I know you've been on high age, Brother Eric. And, uh, you know, I'm going to put you on the spot here. <laughs> no, I want you to come back on and then uh, kind of uh, dispense this information to our people. And they can hear it uh, nationwide, worldwide, whatever that's necessary. Um, but one thing that I want you to do, if you can't, because I know you've been busy. And that's the reason why you kind of went on hiatus with the program, because of your obligations uh, to the co-op itself. But you said that you were on a, uh, a panel this week or Black Liberation panel this month? It, it's coming up. Yes, it's one coming up this week. Well, I want you to, um, well, we'll be in touch because the the calendar of events and some of the things that uh, that the co-op is doing, even if you don't do the program on the, the, the weekly basis like you were doing, uh, Time for Awakening can broadcast uh, some of the, the things that the co-op is doing or even panels that you're on. Similar to what I did when uh, Ron Hance uh, had uh, you were on the panel, Ron Hance. So sure. it, 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 the people need to hear this information. They they really right. do. So uh, they can be inspired to do something similar. Even if it's not a food co-op, uh, they might consider doing an urban co-op. Because we got folks up here that Richard's in touch with that, that doing that's doing urban gardens. And they need, they need assistance. They need uh, expertise and help. So uh, you know, it's, it's always ways where people will benefit from the knowledge production,
7: right? And I, if I, if I can just add, because one thing that you raise, you know, and because I'm adamant that this is an economy that this is a survival economy as it relates to Black folks in America, the propaganda perspective of you know whether it be about the, the reparative um, justice aspect or centering our historical narrative of how co-ops, you know, from a propaganda perspective, putting that information out consistently, which I don't hear um, being done, is really, really, really important in order to possibly um, create the inspiration for people to do just what you said, to be able to at least, if not support co-ops in the area, or at least uh, start co-ops in their area. And then, you know, then this here supply chain can um, interconnect, um, in a, in a, in a different fashion as we move forward. Because it's an economy that we can be able to, um, develop. But if people don't have a sense of it, um, going to what the sister is, if they don't have a sense of it and we don't promote it or, or propagandize it, then people are just, it'll just be those small, um, units, um, mm-hmm. Don't really see that these values, and I and I think that's important. What you said, these are va- those seven values black people resonate with because it's a part of our historical narrative. And and I don't think that we can we may deny it, but we can't overlook it. So that's so it's important for us to, um, you know, using say reparations as a means, cooperatives as a part of reparations, or being able to show how cooperatives as a part of our historical economy, like that's critical in my mind um, that we constantly hear so it can be passed on to the next generation and say, this is a career choice, this is an option, this is an economic um, economic development aspect, an entrepreneurial aspect that you can be get in, but you have to have these values in order to make it work. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Well, Eric, thanks for being with us, man. I'll be in touch with you. You know that. All right. Peace.
7: And I'll let you beat me up um, on Clubhouse sometime. I know you're too busy to do that,
1: though. <laughs> Y'all be good. Good to hear your voice, Nick. <laughs> Talk to you, Larry. Take care, now. Peace. Richard, I'm glad to have Eric uh, join us and kind of let us know uh, what they're doing. They'll be breaking ground soon on that uh, uh, grocery store. And really? uh, he mentioned before that they had... Uh, the cooperative owned two or three gas stations, right so you're going to have the gas station with the grocery store the commercial kitchens uh, you know it's it's uh it's kind of moving forward, not kind of moving forward it's moving forward and it's been in existence over fifty years right. and that 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 just shows the the stick itiveness of people that's dedicated and just like yeah. you said, that model man uh, Eric mentioned it about that rugged individualism that we have adopted from Europeans. That don't Mm -hmm. work for us. I mean, it might work for individuals here and there. But when you see a bunch of people chasing that type of uh, carrot and you can't, by and large, black folks can't get money to go in business. They just can't. They -hmm. can't go to these banks and get no money. It's difficult. But it's not Mm -hmm. difficult to get people together and start a cooperative.
0: Mm.
7: Yeah, No. And that, I mean, it's I mean, the the challenge is, and it's this invisible monster isn't invisible is about this value system, and and that gets into because we have to exercise this individualistic value system that we carry, which goes back to that um, the the piece that you were reading in relationship to the boys, and and about you know um, you know the uh, what is it was it called something to white um it it that that piece because those what the boys was descri- describing that white folks had is what we as individuals and in a social collective are moving to and that's and that's not good for us
0: hmm.
7: it, it, it just not it's just not good i mean it it's a killer really yes it's yes. a killer You know, and and the question we have to ask is, do we want to be
1: erased? You know, so I agree. Listen, before we uh, go this evening, just uh, give the lineup on time for an awakening medium, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. African Perspectives with Brother Oshie. Always interesting topics, dialogue, and guests on African Perspectives. That's Mondays. Wednesdays and Fridays, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. You know, uh, within the next couple of weeks, Richard, we're going to have one of the hosts from, uh, Black Reality Think Tech that's going to, uh, be coming back on, uh, mm-hmm. around the first week in March. Kind of join us. Sister Lotus will be joining us to, uh, kind of preview the program, her approach dealing with the uh, taking Black Reality Think Tank further or passing right. the baton being passed to her. And, and uh and brother Alfonso Watkins and uh kinda talking about uh because she got a new book being released so it it'll be interesting to have her on. And she's been uh her field of expertise is something that you have been talking about for a while, Richard, in personal conversations about this generational trauma. So it'll mm-hmm. be interesting to hear uh her perspectives on uh as a sister on how we can deal with this. Um on Thursday, uh, uh Brother Patrick, remember Mississippi on the move, uh the Black Liberation Movement in Mississippi. I talked with Brother Patrick uh today. He uh uh he got back uh from Colorado, Richard, uh some things going on. So uh hopefully um maybe next week we'll get an update from him uh or hear it on the program on Thursday, exactly what's going on. On Friday from eight to ten time for an awakening and on saturdays from seven to nine the elders of sankofa with dr janine james i want to thank everybody for listening to the program this evening lively discussion as always and we'll be back on friday lord willing to continue on this path towards an awakening peace
0: if you're driving through the country children playing after school children to save the children